You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us now turn to the Word of Christ. First, as we find that in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 9, and then we will turn to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4. We'll read these passages in connection with our text in John 9. John's account of the healing, Jesus' healing of the man who is blind from birth. We begin our reading then in 2 Samuel 9. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amuel, in Lodeber. So King David had him brought from Lodeber, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. We now turn to 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants, 
for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that His life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I may proclaim the gospel to you today from the gospel according to John chapter 9. As he, our Lord Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed, and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they call Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. 
Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they went, they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, He said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, sickness and disability is something that belongs to our earthly condition. 
Many of us who do not have to deal with such conditions may not give a lot of thought to these realities of our human existence. But there are many among us who suffer chronic conditions, who on a daily basis have to deal with pain and discomfort, and are faced with permanent physical or emotional limitations and constraints, young and old. We do not forget, of course, their families and others who care for them. There are those among us, young and old, who suffer arthritis, paralysis, diabetes, various chronic syndromes, loss or injury of limbs, head injury, heart disease, seizures, cancer, and I'm sure you can add to the list. Jesus, God's Son, became man to enter into our lives, also our suffering. He pitched His tent among us, John tells us in chapter 1, verse 14. He made His dwelling among us. He tabernacled among us. In other words, He moved in with us, so to speak. And in His tent, in His dwelling place, in His tabernacle, He makes room for the sick, for the suffering, for the disabled. Consider David, who invited the crippled Mephibosheth to live in his house, provided him with land and wealth, and even invited him to eat every day at his table. David portrayed before Jesus came to earth what Jesus is like. John's report of the healing of the man born blind is anything but incidental. In this miracle, our Lord Jesus reveals Himself as everything that John has told us about Him at the very beginning of the book. You remember how John's Gospel begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus shows us in this miracle that He indeed is God. John also tells us in the third verse of the Gospel that through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And here in this miracle we see how Christ exercises the same power that He had when the world was created through Him. John has told us right at the beginning of his Gospel that Jesus is the life of man and the light of man. And in this miracle, clearly He is both light and life for all. The Apostle John tells us about the glory of Jesus that He has seen in chapter 1. And here in John 9, John tells us how Jesus the Word brings us from dust to glory. With that in mind, Let's consider God's Word here in John 9. Jesus was on His way from one place to another. He had no intention, actually, of stopping. But when He saw the man who was blind from birth, He stopped. This prompted a question from His disciples. Verse 2, 
Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. And in his typical disarming fashion, Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he healed the blind man. He revealed God's glory. He revealed his own glory as a son of God. Now many of God's servants, besides Jesus, both before and after Him, performed miracles. The prophets before Jesus and the apostles after Jesus could perform many miracles, healing the sick, making the lame walk. You know of the many times after Pentecost when the disciples performed miracles. So read in the book of Acts. And the prophets before Christ performed miracles. Remember how Elijah even raised a young man from the dead. But you know what is truly remarkable, brothers and sisters, in light of this miracle? That nowhere in the Bible do we read about anyone other than Jesus healing the blind. None of the prophets before Him could make blind people see. And none of the apostles after Him could do this either. The Scripture gives us a clue about why this was so. Besides telling us in Exodus 4, verse 11, and Psalm 146, verse 8, which we will later sing, that God is the one who gives sight to the blind, The Scripture tells us, particularly in Isaiah's prophecy, that the ability to do this was something that would belong uniquely to the ministry of the coming Messiah, the servant of the Lord. In other words, that would be one of the distinguishing characteristics of the Messiah. That would be something that would make people realize that He was the long-awaited Messiah if He could give sight to the blind. There are three places in Isaiah's prophecy that indicate this. Isaiah tells God's people that a time will come, Isaiah 29, when out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35, verse 5, quoted in Handel's Messiah, then will the eyes of the blind be opened. God says of His servant in Isaiah 42 that He will have power to open the eyes of the blind. Since no other man ever had the ability to give sight to the blind, surely it was clear that here was the Messiah. The blind could see. You remember when John the Baptist, when he was in prison, sent someone to ask Jesus whether He really was the Christ. And one of the proofs that Jesus conveys to him that He really was the Christ was that He gave sight to the blind. Matthew 11. Also, the manner in which the Lord Jesus healed the blind man is significant. John reports this in the verses 6 and 7. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. 
Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, the question arises, why did Jesus perform the healing in this peculiar way? Many people have puzzled over this. Bible explainers and commentators. And many interpretations have been offered. One interpretation, for example, suggests that by doing this, Jesus was transgressing the laws of cleanliness that the Pharisees had established as part of their sacred tradition. There's a more convincing explanation, though. Notice the elements that are used in the healing of the man. The dust of the ground, saliva from Jesus' mouth, and water from the pool of Siloam. Let's go through these. What does the water symbolize? Well, in John's Gospel, it symbolizes the Spirit of the living God. You remember how Jesus said to Nicodemus in chapter 3 that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. John 7, 2. We read how at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood up and said in that very dramatic moment, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Then it says in the next verse that by this He meant the Spirit. So the work of God's Spirit And His power in this healing is symbolized by the water in the pool of Siloam. The other two elements are the saliva from Jesus' mouth mixed with the dust of the ground. Now what does this remind us of, brothers and sisters? Well, think back to the very beginning of the Bible. It reminds us of the creation of man and woman. How did God form man and woman and give them life? From the dust of the ground. And He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life. Man was formed from the dust of the ground and was given life by the breath that came out of God's mouth. What did God breathe into man's, into man's nostrils? His spirit, the source of all life. So the saliva represents the breath of God, the breath of God's mouth, and the dust reminds us of the dust out of which man and woman were made. So you see, brothers and sisters, the healing of the blind man was a kind of reenactment of the creation of man. How appropriate then that Jesus Himself should be the one to perform this miracle. For as John has told us earlier in the Gospel, through Him all things were made, including man. And in Him was life for man. Remember what Jesus had said to His disciples. This happened 
so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Indeed, the healing of this man's blindness was a mini-drama of the great work of God in the beginning. It was a playback of when man was created very good in the image of God, by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, by the breath of His mouth, from the dust of the ground. But brothers and sisters, more, more remarkable still, more astounding still, is what the Lord Jesus does in this man's heart. He performs a miracle in his heart to use the words of the canons of Dort that is not inferior in power to the creation of the world. After healing the paralytic at Bethesda, Jesus had told his disciples that he would do even greater works than what he had just done. John 5. All the miracles he performed when he healed people's bodies were a sign of the greater work that He does in people's souls, bringing them to faith, to conversion. Jesus had said in chapter 6 that to believe is the work of God. The work of God is this, He said, to believe in the One He has sent. Indeed, the blind man's faith was a greater work of God than his healing. You know, brothers and sisters, it's better to believe and be blind than to see and not have faith. As we hope to see this afternoon. According to John's account, there's a progressive growth in this man's faith. First, he he didn't seem to know much more about Jesus than his name. Later, he professed to be a disciple of Jesus. In spite of the opposition of the Pharisees who had authority to ban him from the synagogue. His parents were afraid of the Pharisees, so they shrank from Jesus. But he boldly confessed the truth and had a fearless and undaunted faith. By the end of the account, he not only believed in Jesus, he worshipped Him. Notice that with the Pharisees, it was the opposite. They became more and more blind. The more questions they asked, the more blind they became. The better they thought they saw, the more blind they actually were. At one point, they said, we know that God spoke through Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. How true. They had no idea where Jesus came from. Because they were blind. They were ever seeing, but never perceiving. But the blind man did see. And so did his disciples. Notice what Jesus said to the disciples in verse 4 before he performed the miracle. As long as it is 
day, we must do the work of Him who sent me. We must do the work, He said. Jesus wasn't going to work on His own. He wanted His disciples to be busy working alongside Him. He had a task for them too. He also had a task for the healed man. Yes, He had greater works for them to do, even greater works than this miracle He had performed. He gave them the work of faith. To believe is the work of God, He had said. That was the work that He did in them and gave them to do. Remember what Paul says, brothers and sisters, in 1 Corinthians 15. He urges us there, always give yourselves to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You know, Paul wasn't just speaking to ministers there and other church workers. He was addressing all the Corinthians. He was addressing all those who were members of the Corinthian church. And brothers and sisters, he also addresses each one of us. We too were once blind. Once we were not able to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But by faith, we see Christ has opened our eyes to the light of the gospel. He is the light and He has given light to us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, which we read, for God who said, notice the creation motif here, for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Then Paul continues in the next verse that we have this treasure in jars of clay. Breakable jars. Jars that are made from dust and water. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Paul was referring to himself, brothers and sisters, and he was referring to his fellow apostles, ministers, and missionaries. But he was also referring to the Corinthians. And to us, for that matter. We're jars of clay. Our bodies are weak. Our bodies are vulnerable to sickness, to injury, to pain, disability, seizure, ultimately, death itself. These things are not senseless to us as they are to the world. The world doesn't see any sense in suffering or disability or injury or sickness. That's why measures like abortion especially of disabled or crippled fetuses and euthanasia of helplessly disabled young 
or old. That's why these measures are so attractive in the world. But we have a different perspective on these things, don't we, brothers and sisters? We know that God has a purpose with those among us who are suffering. And not only for them, but for each one of us as their fellow members. In them and through them, He desires to show us His all-surpassing power. And in this, the sick, the disabled, glorify God. We know from Christ, the Lord and Creator of life, by faith, that suffering enters our lives for a purpose. That purpose is that the work of God might be displayed in our lives, in the lives of our children, parents, grandparents, friends, spouses, and others who have to suffer. We know that God desires to display His mighty work also in their lives. Suffering and disability, serious injury and sickness and old age doesn't prevent Him from working faith. In fact, God's work of faith is often more powerfully displayed in the lives and testimonies of those who suffer and have disabilities and are aging those who suffer serious injuries than of those who don't. Jesus displays His glory and His power in them, through them. Brothers and sisters, let us continually remember such persons also in our midst. Let us value them and love them. Let us delight in them. Let us make room for them the way David did. Let us show them honor. Let us be generous to them. And let us pray that Jesus Christ would indeed display His glory in them and rejoice over them the way He rejoiced over this healed man. Yes, Jesus displays His glory also in and through those among us who care for the disabled. Mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters who patiently and lovingly and sacrificially nurture and care for their disabled, sick, or injured children. Nurses and caregivers who dedicate their livelihoods to terminally ill, the elderly, the disabled. Let us praise the Lord for these brothers and sisters and continually uphold them through words of encouragement and appreciation and through constant prayer. Yes, even in sickness and suffering, through our tears and sadness and disappointment and pain, frustration, immobility, we may rejoice that God's all-surpassing power 
is being revealed. And then, though God's, though God may not bring a miracle of healing in this life, we rejoice that He has done a greater miracle than ever in us. He's given us faith. He's made us into new creatures. He's raised us from the dust. And He's bringing us to glory where we will be given new bodies that are like Christ's glorious body. He's given us a place in His home, in His Father's mansions. As Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 4, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Yes, our earthly tent is temporary. It's falling down. But Jesus has pitched His tent among us. He's made room for us in His tent, including our chronically injured, sick, our disabled, and elderly. He's invited us all to Himself. He's invited us all to His table where we may eat and drink with Him always. He's given us riches and honor and glory that can never be taken away. He's raised us from dust to glory. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.